Uh, we are in chapter 3. We're doing a series on seven letters for seven churches, and we're at church number 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking verses 1 through 6. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Stuart has Bibles in his, in his hand, and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. These are Jesus' words to the church in Sardis, and he begins in verse 1 by saying, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch... I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my study this morning is Sardis, the Church of the Walking Dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we dig into your word, that we would have not only information, but application in our lives that would draw us closer to our relationship with you. We thank you for this time, Lord. We know it's your desire to speak to our hearts. We thank you for just a sense of your presence in this place this morning. And so bless our time, we pray, Lord, anoint it. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd especially touch their heart today, Lord. We commit our time to you. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, we pray. Well, I heard a story about a man who came out to watch the neighborhood church burn. He heard the fire trucks and and, and all of the commotion. So he stood there and he watched this great church was burning while it was burning to the ground. Well, the, the pastor was quite surprised to see him. And he asked him, so what are you doing here? The man says, well, pastor, I just wanted to come and see this. Well, the pastor says, well, for years I've been trying to get you to come out to one of our services, and now you finally show up when the church is burning down? Well, the man responded, well, pastor, this is the first time in all those years that I've ever seen a church on fire. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever been to a really dead service at church? And don't say last week, okay? Don't say last week. Heard about a church that was so dead that when a member actually died in a service that the paramedics carried out five people before they got the right one. G. Campbell Morgan said, Organized Christianity which fails to make a disturbance is dead. If we're not making some sort of disturbance, something is wrong. See, before us in Revelation here is the very antithesis of a vibrant church. This is a message Jesus has to a dead church. A church that outwardly had a lot going on for it, but inwardly it was dead as a doornail. And so first what we'll see is the Lord diagnoses their problem, then he gets his prescription for spiritual healing. But let's keep in mind that the church is made up of people like you and me. So this really is a prescription for all of us, uh, for any believer who has begun to experience maybe spiritual deadness in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you had a, 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 in your life a lapse into a spiritual deadness. 
So as we look at the church of Sardis, let's remember, as we've already seen in our other studies, that uh, this is a letter to the seven churches. And each one of these letters to the seven churches address four things, four ways to apply the number one, practically, number two, personally, number three, prophetically, and number four, historically. So a little background, historically, Sardis was one of the greatest cities of the world. It had been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. In uh, the 6th century BC, there was uh, in Sardis a very wealthy king whose name was Croesus, who became a byword for uncounted wealth. And that soon began to characterize Sardis. It was characterized also by a loose, luxurious lifestyle. Now, where it was located, it was uh, almost on an inaccessible plateau. Its Acropolis, which was nearly perpendicular rock walls, was about 1,500 feet straight up above the main roads. And the only way into the city was from the south, which made them virtually unconquerable. Yet, several times in Sardis' history, it was invaded. One time it was by the Persians and once by the Greeks. And both times, it was done by surprise. See, they were so confident in their walls that it would guard them adequately that they didn't put enough soldiers out there to really guard it. And some brave soldiers climbed up the sides of the ravine and entered the unwatched gate and overthrew the city. You see, that, that uh, complacent spirit really characterized Sardis. Well, that attitude seemed to then uh, spill over into the church as well. See, the name Sardis means remnant which is a fitting name that we'll see, but it also has been called by many other names. It's been called the Fruitless Church. It's been called the Church of Spiritual Apathy, the Church with a Reputation but Needing a Resuscitation, the Feeble Church, and that's why I like to call it the Church of the Walking Dead. But there's still hope, because Jesus is still the head of the church, and he's in the business of making dead things alive again. Like Ephesians 2.1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5 tells us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Now, if you've been taking notes over the last few weeks, you know, you recognize that my points are going to be the three same points that we've had before. Number one, we're going to look at Jesus' commendation. Number two, the criticism. And number three, the correction. So what does Jesus have to say to this church in Sardis? First, the commendation. Uh, Look at verse 1. Jesus says in verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name. Now, there's not a whole lot of good to say about this church, but at least Jesus does say, hey, I know your works. So it wasn't a lazy church. It wasn't an inactive church. It wasn't a church that was filled with a lot of paganism, as the church of Thyatira was, and to some degree the church in Pergamos, as we looked at that. No doubt this is a church that had regular services. You know, if someone asked you, "Where where do you go to church? Oh, I go to the church of Sardis. Everyone would know, oh man, yeah, Calvary Sardis, you know, whatever you want to call it. They had a name. In the same way, you know, there are churches today that seemingly have it all together. You know, they have beautiful buildings. They have extensive programs going on. You look at their website, man, it looks like it's an ad for the YMCA. Man, they got, you know, daycare and fitness classes and and everything, you know. Uh, It's a one-stop shopping church, you know. That's what Sardis was like, humming with activity. No shortage of money or talent or manpower. Outwardly, every indication that a church was on the move, but there was something wrong that Jesus could see. That brings us to point number two, the criticism. Look at the end of verse one and the end of verse three. The end of verse one, he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. 
in the end of verse 3, I have not found your works perfect before God. That word perfect could also be translated fulfilled. I have not found your works fulfilled before God. In other words, the church in Sardis was an empty shell with no body to fill them. They had routines, they had activities, they had programs, but they did not fulfill God's purpose or pattern for them. So you ask, well, did they pray? I'm sure they did. But their prayers, no doubt, only went as high as the ceiling. You know, uh, you know they were more interested in the form of prayer rather than who they were praying to. Did they listen to sermons? No, I'm sure they did. In fact, they're probably more interested in the skill of the orator than in the message that was being delivered. Did they worship? Oh, I'm sure they had the best worship that there was. You know, maybe, you know, largest choir that ever was. They had it all. Maybe they're more interested, though, in the technique than what they were doing, than who they were worshiping. Yet Jesus says, you are dead. You are dead. Now, when you hear that, what kind of image does it bring up in your mind? You know, again... Too many zombie movies out today. You know, I, I pictured zombies out there. You know, a scene from the Hollywood B movie, you know, with the title Night of the Living Dead or I Married a Zombie. You know, zombies, so-called, they, they like to, to dine on the flesh of a living to survive. And, and, uh, and you know, Pastor talks about zombies at church. What, what are you talking about? Well, listen, there's a point in this. Really, there is. I mean, what is scarier than a B movie about zombies is, spiritually speaking, one of those walking corpses could be me, and it could be you. We could be these walking zombies. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 5, 13 through 16. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. That's a zombie capability in all of us, to bite, devour one another, be consumed by one another. You know, be about things of the flesh and getting into the things of the flesh. It may look like a church has really got it going on, but inwardly maybe there's things happening. Paul will go on to say in Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And we'll see that's the key to what Jesus says is going to help this church of Sardis. The Holy Spirit, you know, giving life to, to, to us. And we need to be plugged into the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis if we're going to be alive. Or we're not going to be a dead church. But this is how this church was. They hourly did some right things, but something was missing inside. and They, not, they had not fulfilled their purpose, Jesus said. Well, what is the purpose of the church? It's an important question to answer because Jesus specifically says this church was not fulfilling it. Listen, the church has a threefold purpose. Number one, the exaltation of God. Number two, the edification of the saints. And number three, the evangelization of the world. Upward, inward, and outward. First and foremost, we are here to glorify God with our lives, to worship the Lord, to honor the Lord with our lives. Secondly, we're here to build one another up, to use the gifts that God has given to us, to be in God's word, to be strengthened through God's word. And then as a, a thirdly, as an overflow of that, we are to give out. We're to evangelize the world. So I ask us this morning, not only as a church, but as individuals, are we living our lives in such a way that we are upward, inward, and outward? Are you seeking to glorify God with your abilities that God has given to you? Are you seeking to build up one another with the gifts that God has given to you? Are you seeking to, to influence your sphere of influence to those around you in getting the gospel out? Because remember, the church is made up of people like, like us. And we can do all the right things outwardly and still be dead. 
Yeah, we can sing songs, uh, worship songs beautifully. In fact, we may be very aware of how beautiful we sing our, sing our songs. Man, I can hit those high notes. In fact, I'm hitting that high note so well. I'm hitting high notes better than this guy next to me who's sitting that high note. But I can't even still. Oh, that guy's really bad. I'm singing this so good. You know, we can be influenced by our own prayers. Oh, man, I can pray. I can pray. Listen to my prayer. I can pray this prayer. And they pray this so eloquently. You can be listen to message and be more focused on the skill of the communicator. Oh, look, he moves a little bit back and forth. He does this. Then really listening to the message he's trying to communicate. Again, that's the problem with the church in Sardis. They had all the externals, but inwardly there was no pulse. They were dead. So Jesus is correcting them. And he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, I mentioned historically about the church in Sardis. We have to look at this from, from the prophetic standpoint. Again, of these seven churches, they also speak of seven different church ages. Starting in Ephesus, the early church, uh, to about 99 AD, leading to the church in Smyrna that we looked at that, the persecuted church to about 313 AD. Then led to the church in Pergamos. We looked at that a couple of weeks back, 300 to 600 A.D. The word Pergamos meant objectionable marriage. And that really became the identification of that church as uh, a man named Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Then came the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. We looked at last week. Thyatira, remember, means comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual or continual sacrifice. And that describes very clearly what takes place during what they call the, the sacrifice of the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. They have what's called the transubstantiation, the false teaching that at communion, the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. And so it's a continual sacrifice week after week. Thyatira prophetically covers a time called the Dark Ages when the Word of God was taken away from the people and authority was given to the popes at that time. And that runs from 600 A.D. all the way to 1380 when the period known as the Protestant Reformation began. That prophetically is where we are at with this church of Sardis uh, as it comes into play. The fifth church, prophetically speaking, is when the Protestant Reformation began. Now that all started with a Roman scholar by the, not a Roman scholar, a scholar by the name of, of John Wycliffe who held views in teaching that were in radical opposition to the practices and teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. This one man, uh, Wycliffe, said that Jesus is the head of the church, not some appointed pope. Now, the church didn't go back, no, man, that's great, glad to hear that, wonderful. No, man, it caused a commotion. So John Wycliffe called for the church to renounce the teachings that they were unbiblical and get back to what the Bible says. In other words, he was saying, you need to get back to the word of God. John Wycliffe desired to see a Bible in the hands of every man so they would see it and read it for themselves. And in the year 1382... He completed the first translation of the Bible into English. That is why we have today what's called the Wycliffe Bible Society. Now, for his efforts, while well, he was excommunicated by the church, and two of his disciples, John Huss and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake. But their death sparked uh, and the, the stirring of Reformation that would begin to burn throughout all of England. That spark would turn into an inferno some hundred years uh, later when a young monk by the name of Martin Luther started struggling with his theology in Germany. And the more he studied, the more he knew that he could never be righteous enough to earn God's favor. Though he tried radically, he thought that he could earn God's favor by, by actually punishing his flesh, punishing his body. He would beat himself up. He would sleep out in the cold and freezing temperatures. 
He would fast for long periods of time, all thinking that in some way he could earn God's favor. Oh, if I just did this work, if I just did that, then, then God would be pleased with me. In fact, he became so distressed by all of this that he decided to journey to Rome to meet with the Pope to talk to the head guy. Well, on his way, on his journey, he ended up getting sick and stopped off at this Alpine monastery to recuperate when one of the monks, sensing Luther's struggle, told him to read the book of Habakkuk. Why Habakkuk? Well, because Habakkuk was one also who, who wrestled with issues like Luther. Well, Luther took his advice. He came to chapter 2, verse 4 in the book of Habakkuk, and a light came on. And he read, and the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's it, he, he cried. If I'm going to be just, it's nothing that I do, nothing that I, I, no work that I can do, but it's by faith in God, faith in what he has done, faith in the finished work of the cross. Luther was excited. He turned back to, to, to Germany to, to, and he took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church. And in the height of the Reformation was on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his list of 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, coming against the pagan practices and rituals of the Roman Catholic Church, and more or less unintentionally setting into motion the series of events that we now call the Protestant Reformation. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. As quickly as it launched, it quickly died. That's why Jesus says prophetically here that this church was alive and is now dead. See, the Protestant Reformation died because it didn't reform enough. And as a result of the Reformation, state churches were put into place. Martin Luther sought out to, to uh, the approval of political leaders, and eventually the Lutheran church became the state church of Germany, as did others throughout Europe. Now, the danger in that, when the church is made up of the entire population, then it eliminates the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, either way, the church was well on its way of dying, so Jesus has some words for it. And that's why he says in verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, we can go through today, because it leads up to today, and we can look at some, some really mainline Protestant denominations, and, and they're dead. They're dead. Why is that? Because they've drifted away. They, they no longer believe in the word of God that it's inspired and given to us. They made compromises in their doctrine. Tragically, the Protestant church has the greater sin really than the Roman Catholic church with their bloodshed and immorality because the Protestant church has brought into it liberal theology. I mean, we, we've accepted homosexual behavior into the church, but not only into the church, but into the leadership of the church. Many of these churches no longer uh, teach the Bible, let alone believe the Bible is a holy inspired word of God, inerrant word of God. And they've replaced pastors with, with, who teach God's word with, with so-called pastors who are really just motivational speakers. I'll oh, get you pumped up. Hey, I get you excited. Pastors who, instead of teaching God's word, teach that supporting their ministry is a means to great gain monetarily. And sadly... Thousands are flocking to these churches and they're excited. They look like they got a lot going on there. But here's the problem. People today make a mistake, a live, make a mistake, a lively church for a church that has life. They make the mistake of a, that a lively church that has a church's life. Oftentimes that which would make a church lively is just a lot of commotion born out of the energy of the flesh. People jumping up and down and dancing all around and excited. Oh man, look at that church. Man, something's happening there. It's lively. Yeah, it may be lively, but it's not alive. And I've shared this before. When I was a kid, we used to raise banty hens. 
And uh, one day they were loose, and, and I noticed one of them tried to, to jump over this little fence that we had, and, and happened to be kind of sharp on the top, and, and uh, let's just say it didn't make it over the fence, and uh, it sliced its head right off, actually. Now, I was about seven years old, and I don't know if, if you've seen it, but when a chicken gets its head sliced off, the, the saying, it runs around like a chicken with its head cut off, it's true. I mean, this little thing is running around, I'm going, what is that? It's alive. It's dead, but it's alive. I mean, until finally, after about two minutes, you know, okay, it's dead now. But, but, kind of scary. And here's my point. You can't have a point in that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of activity doesn't mean it's alive. A lot of activity doesn't mean it's alive. We need to discern between being lively and being alive. I mean, here's something that's very important to realize. Where did life in church begin with? I mean, did it come from good planning? Did it come from fancy buildings, brilliant leadership, great theologians? No. It came on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit. Jesus put it this way in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The life of the church came from the power of the Holy Spirit directing all of the activities of the early church. And yet it's been said today that if the Holy Spirit has removed himself from most churches, 95% of their activities would continue. Sardis was just like that. We don't want to be like that. So this brings us to our third point, the correction. What is the prescription that the great physician offers for the dead church? For that matter, what, what can a believer do that has entered into a deadened state themselves? Well, the key is, is the way the Lord presents himself to each church that we've looked at and gives us to a clue as to why they need to, to get right with them. In this case, go back to verse 2. And Jesus' introduction of himself, he says, These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits are a symbol of the Holy Spirit and his fullness. So what Jesus is saying to these believers, and any believer who has entered into that state of spiritual deadness, what you need is a whole, is a Holy Spirit. You need a refilling of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that sparked the, the church and set it into motion is alive and well today and is still working to work in the lives of Christian, of Christian men and women. And we want to continue to rely on that work of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might, not by, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And every Christian should ask the Lord to fill them each and every day. But there's more that we have here. See, beginning in verse 2, Jesus then lays out for them five more things to keep them, to keep us from dying. Five things that would spark revival in their lives. Number one, in verse 2, Jesus says, be watchful. Be watchful. It's a Greek word meaning to wake up. Wake up, Jesus is saying. Why? Because they were asleep at the will. They're not even aware of the problems. They didn't even know that they were drifting. But we certainly see that today in our society. Churches that are drifting away, they have no idea they're drifting away. Growing up in Southern California, I would spend my summers at the beach, you know, body surfing. But I always learned to look at the lifeguard stand that I was in front of, that I went out at, so I know where I was, so when I'd come back to my stuff. Well, you know, the first time you're out there, you, you, you forget where you are, and you can find yourself drifting. And there's times where I've had to walk blocks back to where I started, because I drifted. Listen, Jesus is our lifeguard. His word is what we need to stand on. That's why the, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, we must give the most earnest, the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Hebrews 2.1. The church in Sardis was drifting fast and didn't know it. 
They started to lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, wake up. Be watchful. They're sharp words. They're, they're, they're words that, that, that are meant like a slap in the face. You know, you see in the movies where they shake, get a hold of yourself, man, and they slap them in the face, you know. It's kind of like that. Wake up to what's going on around you. You know, there are times, you know, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, when you're someplace and there's just something about the air. You know, sometimes it gets a little warm, especially in here, and it gets kind of quiet. And suddenly you find yourself kind of yawning just a little bit, kind of sleepy, you know, <sighs> kind of tired, you know, and in fact, you're saying even right now, you know, in fact, I'm a little tired right now, you know, you, you, you just, kind of, just rest my eyes for a moment. Now, you know, um, I'm in an amazing position for me as a pastor since, since we built this stage especially, it's been about a year, I'm up a little bit higher. And from time to time, you know, I have a little bit of a view here and I can kind of tell, you know, when you get in that feeling, it's a head bob, it starts to be. So just, just a little bit, now just a little bit back, you know, and I can see it, you know, and, 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 and that's it, it's a little bit, maybe it goes the other way for a little bit, I like that, then it's like, okay, I gotta get my Bible, so you, do, you look like you're reading your Bible, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, and you kind of hold your Bible, but I know when the jaw drops, I know you're God, you know, <laughs> the drool's coming down, you know, and your wife, oh, I'm awake, I'm awake. I understand, though. We've all been there. I've been there. Work schedules, up late at night, kids keeping you awake all night. It happens. But here's what Jesus is saying. We need to wake up spiritually. Spiritually, we need a wake-up call. We can't afford to be sleeping in these last days. We see the signs all around us that Jesus could return at any moment. And we need to be aware. We need to be looking for Him. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 5.14... Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul also writes in Romans 13, 11, and do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We need to wake up from that spiritual sleep, from unconsciousness, from unresponsiveness, from inactivity concerning the things of God, and get back to where he wants us to be. And listen, we need to know that the, the Lord's return is nearer than when we first believed. We're closer to the Lord's return than we've ever been. It's time to pull out all stops. So be watchful, he says. Number two, verse two, he says, strengthen the things which remain. That word for strengthen here means to stabilize. It means a, a, you know, kind of a picture of stabilizing a patient. You know, maybe their heart stopped and get that, that shocker's going, boom, okay, we got his heart stable. He's stable again. Okay, now we, now we can work on him. That's the idea. This church needed to be stabilized in its foundation. Uh, thus, the Bible studies needed strengthening. Their worship needed strengthening. Their observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper needed strengthening. How could they be stabilized? Again, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through their lives. And that's a hard thing for me. I know it's a hard thing for you uh, to, to admit that, that you know, we're just, well, I'm just kind of going through the motions. We know in our own lives, if, if we are, if we're not, we know if the, the Holy Spirit, if we're really relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, God sees our hearts. And he's telling us, like he told the church in Ephesus, get back to the things that you once did. Get back to that first love relationship you once had with Jesus. So be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. Then Jesus says, number three, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Well, what was received initially? The Bible. God's Word. You received God's Word. You heard God's Word. 
Now, prophetically, we know it came from Wycliffe, Calvin, Knox, Luther. I think he's calling, uh, I believe, back to the teaching of God's word. Get back to how you used to love to hear God's word being taught. Get back to that excitement. Get back to how it was when you couldn't wait to, to be at a Bible study because you knew that God was going to speak to you through his Holy Spirit. Remember those times. Remember how you began your walk completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Get back to that. Paul would write in Galatians 3.3, 3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? In other words, if the Holy Spirit is the one that brought you to Christ in the first place, empowered you to live for Him, why are you trying not to live for Him in your flesh? Get back to the life in the Spirit. The number four, he says, hold fast. That's the call to hold fast to the Word of God. Hold fast to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. The, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth, the, the deity of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Hold fast to that. Number five, and most importantly, he says, repent. Verse three. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. See, repentance involves not only an act of turning towards God, but turning away from your old life, the old ways. It also involves a submissive heart, submitting to the Lord. So Sardis needed to repent. The Protestant Reformation needed to repent. It still does. And that's why Jesus gave us these five things that would spark revival, that would wake us up, that would strengthen us. Remember, hold fast, repent. It was R.G. Lee who put it this way. If all the sleeping folk will wake up, if all the lukewarm folk will fire up, if all the dishonest folk will confess up, if all the depressed folk will cheer up, if all the disgruntled folk will shut up, no, if all, if all the true soldiers will stand up, if all the dry bones will shake up, if all the church members will pray up, then we can have revival. I like that. R.A. Torrey put it this way, I can give a prescription that will bring revival, revival to any church or community or any city on earth. He says, number one, let few Christians get thoroughly right with God. If this is not done, the rest will come to nothing. Number two, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the windows of heaven and comes down. And number three, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for his use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. Given this prescription around the world and in no instance has it failed, it cannot fail. Get right with God, pray, and put yourself in a position to be used by God. And we'll see revival. Well, Jesus finally closes with a warning and a promise. Jesus gives us warning in verse 3. He says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Jesus says, if you don't get back to the basics, back where you need to be, I'm going to come to you as a thief. Now, this is where mainline denominationalism increasingly finds itself. There's proponents of such in some of these churches that do not believe in the rapture of the church. There are those that don't believe in the millennial reign of Christ. They, they, they teach that the promises of the kingdom, the sayings of Isaiah, the teaching of Revelation are simply allegorical. They say, well, don't, 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 don't look for the rapture. That's not going to happen. Don't look for a real kingdom to be established on earth. Uh, and, and so what Jesus is saying, man, you're going to be caught off guard when he returns. See, I believe we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his church. So show me a church who does not believe in the imminent return of the Lord, and I will show you a church that is facing spiritual deadness. 
Show me a believer who does not believe in, in Christ and can come back at any time. And I'll show a believer who some capacity is dead spiritually. Because when you believe Christ is going to come back, and, and you're going to want to make sure your life is right with him. And it's going to have a purifying effect on your life. In fact, that's what John tells us in 1 John 3, 3, speaking of his return. He says that he that has his hope purifies himself even as he is pure. I mean, it's going to keep you on your toes. It's going to make you want to live a godly life. Now, this is probably not the best analogy, but I'll use it. You know, my wife, she teaches the, the Thursday morning women's study here at the church. And, and, you know, I'll take her here and I'll drop her off and I'll come home and, and I'll make my breakfast, my breakfast burrito and all my, my pots and my pans. And, and I usually make a pretty good mess. And then I'll sit down and I'll eat my, my food and I'll kick back until it's time to pick her up. But I know that she hates messes. And so, you know, like five minutes before I have to leave, then I'll get back to the kitchen. And I'll make sure, okay, got it all cleaned out and just everything's good so you can't even tell that I, I had my breakfast, you know. And, and I know that and, and, and I'm going to do a good job because I know and, and, and she's going to be home soon. It's going to have an effect on me. Now, I don't want to say that, that my wife is like the second coming of Christ, but... The idea, if you know someone is going to come over, it's going to make a difference. You know, you got some, someone coming over to your house, you know, you, you're going to want to have it cleaned up. You're going to want to make sure it's nice. You know, if you know your boss is showing up at work, you know, and you know, you, you're going to want to be doing your job. Then not that you shouldn't be doing your job anyway, but you're not going to be kicking back and having your feet up on the stool and kicking back. You're going to want to do a good job for him. Listen, since we know that Christ can come back at any time, it should affect the way that we live. It should cause us to want to live lives that are right, lives that are clean, lives that are holy. It should cause us to want to be about our Father's business. We should be excited about the Lord's return. But that all depends on what side of the fence you're on. Because the Bible teaches the return of Jesus is often described in two ways. And each way depends on where you're at in your relationship with Him. Consider this ominous description of the Lord's return found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But then the prophet continues without a break and says in verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. I love that. Are they two different events? No, it's the same event. It's the return of the Lord. The difference is you'll either be greeted with joy or dread depending on where you're at with the Lord. See, the, the church's attitude or the individual Christian's attitude for that matter towards the Lord's return is always a revelation of that soul's condition before God, where you're at with God. John wrote in 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when He returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from Him in shame. So you're either going to be... Uh, excited in boldness and courage when the Lord returns are you going to shriek back in shame? And if you're abiding in Christ, living for Christ, you're going to be bold and you'll be ready. But if you're not abiding with Christ, if you're not walking with God, then you're going to be ashamed. So what is your attitude about the Lord's return right now? The person who is right with God never hears this message without saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You're excited. But the person who's not right with God is filled with a sense of dread and fear. Oh God, I'm not ready. My life is not where it needs to be. 
Jesus says, therefore, if you will not watch and wake up and repent, the loss is going to be yours. Because when I come back from my church, you're not going to be ready. You're going to be caught off guard. And you're going to be ashamed at my coming. See, Jesus is calling us to make a change. And if there's areas in your life where you'd be ashamed if the Lord would suddenly come back and you'd be in the presence of the Lord, then that needs to change. He wants to avoid future embarrassment for us. And finally, the Lord gives this promise in verse 4. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Jesus is saying, there's a few that have held on to my word. They are starting in Sardis, starting in the, in the, the Protestant Reformation. There are those within the church that are still, man, we're in God's word. We're in God's word. We're looking for your return. And he says, because you are, are an overcomer, because you're faithful, a true believer, you're going to be rewarded with white garments. He's talking about eternity there and never having to deal with the stain of sin again or the hurt and the destruction that sin causes. Jesus continues in verse 5. He says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Ah, you'll be confessed before his Father and before angels. You know, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, we read that if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 15. So it would appear that having your name in this book of life is very important, I think. To understand when we come to faith in Christ, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But I think there's another way of looking at this, according to this scripture here in Revelation, uh, is that everyone's name is written in the book of life. But if they fail to appropriate the vision of God in Christ, then their name is blotted out. Their name is blotted out. Because he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, those that, that hold out fast to them. See, if you fail to, fail to repent of your sin, if you fail to accept the finished work of Christ upon the cross, then you've not have your sin forgiven. You still have to pay for the penalty of your sin. And you have to pay for those consequences. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. See, He's the Savior of all men. Jesus died on the cross for the whole world, but only those who receive that sacrifice for what Jesus did, only those who repent from their sins and turn to Christ will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. Imagine that scene for a moment and the disappointment as you stand before God and you see the place where your name once was written, but now it's blotted out. That black sharpie, you see the, the, the scratch marks. Or imagine the joy and excitement to stand before God and you see... The, the blot out in front and below, but your name is right there, clear for all to see. Oh, man. See, the choice is yours. That's why Jesus says and closes in, in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to listen. We need to apply these words of Jesus. But Jesus said in one other place, in Matthew 10, 32, 33, He said this, Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, him I will also confess before My Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, there are many in Sardis who professed Christianity, but they did not possess Christ. He may have been their Savior, but he was not their Lord. Jesus Christ demands a personal commitment, not a commitment to a church, not a commitment to a denomination or a creed, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Listen, today could be the day that the Lord decides it's time to return for his church. It could be the day that he returns for you specifically. And the question that needs to be answered is, are you ready? Are you ready if the Lord would return today? Are you excited about his return? Or would you be ashamed? Are you confident that he will confess you before his father and before his angels? Or do you have some doubt? Listen, I don't want any of us here this morning to have any doubt whatsoever. And I encourage you this morning, if you've drifted away, recommit your life to him today. Don't wait another moment. Get back to what he needs to be, where he needs to be with the Lord. And then number two, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ this morning, I would encourage you to give your life to him today. See, Jesus sees our hearts. He knows what's going on in our lives. And he knows where you're at this morning. And he knows where you need to be. Maybe there's some resuscitation that needs to take place. Maybe there's a, a shocking to your heart, you know, clear, boom, you know, get this get going again. If that's your desire, you want to recommit your life to the Lord, or you want to give your life to Jesus Christ the first time to come to faith in him today, I want to give you that opportunity as we close. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for how powerful your Holy Spirit works in our lives, Lord, to shine the light in our lives personally, Lord, corporately as a church, but personally, Lord, each one here, to see where we need to be with you. Lord, to see, Lord, if we're not excited about your return, maybe we're, we're in comatose state, Lord. Maybe we need to be revived. Lord, you know our hearts and you know what you've shown us. And I pray for everyone here, if there's need for a recommitment, Lord, that they would see that and they would make that commitment this morning. Lord, if there's a need for a first-time commitment, maybe there's someone here that never really asked you to forgive them of their sin and turn from it. But this morning you've talked, you've spoken to their hearts, Lord. And now they desire to make that commitment. I pray that you'd give them the faith to make that stand for you this morning. To make that commitment. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning?